Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by our friends at YCharts. Check out YCharts' latest research on which portfolios and asset classes perform the best during Fed rate hike cycles. All right, so they looked at 10 different allocation strategies and how they performed. 60-40, then they did like a 55-35-10, which is like commodities as the 10. They looked at the rate hikes during 1999 to 2000 that started, 2004 to 2006, 2015 to 2018. How's a 50-50 maker down Ave portfolio? <laughs> Uh, the other thing is like, they look at what happened after the rate hiking cycle and during it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think these kind of scenario analysis tools are good for, especially advisors for setting expectations and looking through the, the range of possibilities. Cause obviously there's no one perfect portfolio in the moment. You only know with hindsight. So if you want to learn more, check out the link on our show notes. And again, go to whitecharts.com, tell them animal spirit sent you 20% off that initial subscription. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. I want to give a plug for Future Proof before we start today's show. Ben, do you know about Breakthrough? The word? Yes. Do you know about Breakthrough as it pertains to Future Proof? Yes, this is the fintech thing? No. So okay, the answer is no. No you, no, you don't know. All right. So Breakthrough is something for people in the financial services industry. If you would like to attend Future Proof, but you don't necessarily want to buy a ticket. If you agree to do this breakthrough session, so you have to, you attend eight meetings and I believe they're 15 minutes. Don't quote me on that. If you attend eight meetings and this is meetings with asset managers, wealth tech platforms. So if you agree to attend eight of those, you get a free ticket, a free ticket. Now, if you agree, if you agree to do it, but you only go to four meetings, you get charged. So you have to go, you have to actually go to the eight meetings. They track you. and. But wait, there's more. They'll also give you a $750 travel stipend if you submit receipts. Not bad. I don't mean to like compare our festival to a timeshare, but I had a friend this week ask me about timeshares. And they said, we did one in like Breckenridge, but we, to get a deal on this place, we had to go to like the hour and a half timeshare meeting. So this is kind of like a timeshare meeting. Same thing, same concept. All right, so we'll link to this in the show notes. It's futureproof.advisorcircle.com slash breakthrough, which is a lot. That's Breakthrough, T-H-R-U. Just search for the show notes. Again, if you're in the financial services industry, attend eight meetings, you get a free ticket, and $750 travel stipend. One last thing. If can we, you by the, are, before, before you, can we just please. agree to, to put through on T-H-R-U? Like, my, my kids are going through spelling stuff in school, and, like, the way that we spell words is just, we've talked, it's so dumb. Like, can we just shorten all the things to make them easier? I'm not opposed to amend, amending the English language. Sure, why not? Let's do it. One yeah. last thing. Uh, if you are a fintech company and you would like the opportunity to do a demo, there's going to be seven companies with seven minutes each. And I can't think of a better place to get in front of advisors, asset managers, and the like. I'm sorry, again, but the word breakthrough we'll the for that would be good there. too. All right. Well, it would work. All right. On to the market. I just saw a crazy stat. We have now gone... I'm doing this from memory, so it's it's directionally right. I'll find the I'll find the, the tweet later. This is from Deutsche Bank. We've gotten like 
87 days without a 3% drawdown in the S&P 500. So you're pushing up against historical highs. I don't know if we're in the 90th percentile, but how about that? 87 days. So I looked, I told you that we did actually have a 7% and change already this year. I guess it was more like February and March. I did do some follow-ups on stuff we were talking about last week. Sometimes we don't have it. Uh, 1926 to 1949, 6.8% annual returns. Remember you were talking about that because of the Great Depression? We spoke about that? We took away, we went to 1959. 36% of all years since 1928 ended up 20% or more versus 27% that ended down. So I said, you're more likely to have an up 20% year than a down year. Wow. That's true. So more than one third of all years since 1928, we're talking 95 years of data, you've you've had a 20% gain or higher in the U.S. stock market. Pretty good. 57%. So six out of 10 years, basically, you're up 10% or more in a given calendar year. Not bad, right? Not bad at all. We'll take it. All right. This is from Sean, a research analyst. Year to date, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Meta have added a combined $3 trillion market cap. So yeah. I, I gave the follow-up stat to Sean, said that that sounds like a lot. What did they lose in their drawdown? And I think it was $3.5 trillion. So right. we've almost round-tripped on market cap for those, those big names. That's a lot. Here's a data point. Remember you, you, you did something like Apple's market cap is bigger than all of Europe? Right. Is that true? Is that right? Someone, well, is like that Apple, right? I, think it was, I think it was Apple's market cap is bigger than the UK or Germany's stock market, something like that. Okay, that's right. I think it was the UK. Yeah, not all yeah, of That makes no yeah. sense. This is from Bespoke. Apple's app store now generates $1.1 trillion in billings and sales on a global basis, making it larger than the annual GDP of all but 16 countries and larger than the GDP of countries like Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Switzerland, and Taiwan. How's that for a mind blower? A face blower? Wow. Every week, it's it's like cementing the status as like the the top dog. Now, what odds would you give Apple being out of the top 10 in the S&P over the next like 10, 20 years? Would that be a bigger surprise than any other company right now? Apple falling out of the top 10? Well, yeah, I just, the services component, how do you, how do you get, how do you bust that up? You know what I mean? Yeah. If you told me that, if you told me that we're not using the iPhone in 20 years the way that we do today, I would believe that, right? Hardware, who knows what it will be? Is there going to be a chip in our brain where we're taking phone calls? I don't know. So I, I feel like that's potentially disruptible. Who knows? The services part of it, that seems, I don't know. I don't know who does that. Although I guess I would go part and parcel with the phone. But so earlier in the year, up until really just the other day, bond traders, and what, I'm, what I mean by this is if you look at Fed fund futures rates and projections, and I'm using a tweet from Callie Cox, um, bond traders had expected the Fed to cut at some point later this year until today. For now, the market is accepting what the Fed has been saying, which is higher for longer. I know that everyone says the bond market is a smart money, but I feel like every long-term bond projection chart looks like this. Bond yields go this way or this way, and then you see the dots that went the opposite way. For years, everyone was predicting rates were going to rise, and they never did. They kept falling. Every one of those charts would show, at the beginning of the year, strategists or the bond market thinks rates are going to rise. And then they'd fall. And now everyone is predicting rates are going to fall, and now they keep rising. So look, it's the opposite. Like, just the bond market is purely momentum traders, it seems like, in the short term. People look at what happened in the last 6 to 12 months and say that's going to keep happening. Or, the, or this happened last cycle. It's going to happen again. Now. I don't know. The well, this bond is the opposite. Is, the bond market is dumber than people think. No, no, no. When people, yes. say, the bo- no. When people say the bond market is a smart money, you're, this is not what they're, they're not talking about that bond market, that bond traders know where rates are going. They're comparing 
bond traders versus stock traders. And if you're going to trust an analyst in a stock, fixed income researchers generally know more than fundamental stock analysts. I think that's what they're talking about. Nobody thinks that the... that's what it I is. Think, what? When, I think the, when people uh, say no, I think, when people all right, go no, ahead. No, the idea Define is that yourself. the bond the idea is that like the bond market can help set expectations about the economy, like inverted yield curves and all and like the forward growth and all the that's the the idea of bond market being smart money. That the bond okay, market yeah. like generally shows that's what's happening with the economy or what's going to happen with the economy. That's definitely I'm just saying the bond market is dumber than people give it credit for. Well, maybe it's not as smart as people give it credit for. Right. Uh somebody emailed us about this inflation. What is this? So you asked last week, why do they take food and why do they take food out if it basically looks like it just follows CPI? Mm. Someone says, my understanding is that as inflation was becoming a vulnerability for Nixon in the early 70s, there was a politically motivated decision to drop food prices from the calculation because they were rising so quickly at the time, not that they were more volatile over the course of history. The academic justification followed the political decision. So this oh, chart from Fred shows yearly changes in CPI, CPI food. CPI energy and CPI less food and energy. And you're right, they, they're pretty darn close. But when you, when you hear like core, you know, the, the media will say excluding the volatile energy and food components. And right. Some other, we, someone else said that just, like, someone else said it could be because there's like exogenous shocks to food that could be like weather related or bad harvests or uh, an, right, an OPEC fair, could be fixing energy prices and that sort of thing. Okay. Right, here's, a, here's your first piece of good news. Uh, Matt Iglesias tweeted this this morning. Average hourly earnings on a real basis are now higher than the inflation level for the first time since early 2021. So we, we talked for a while. People have been getting raises, but the raises, the wage growth has not been as high as inflation, unfortunately. That if you, if you if you if you change this, so you're looking at average hourly earnings compared to CPI. It's just not, yeah, it's on uh, a real and basis. This is, this is on a, yeah, on a month, but it's, this is monthly, right? So we're looking at monthly snapshots of time. And yes. it finally went positive for the first time since pre 2021. If you looked at the if you looked at the cumulative effect of this, it's probably pretty gnarly. You know what I mean? Like the amount that that earnings have lagged inflation on a cumulative basis is probably a huge gap. Yeah, but if you look at the cumulative effect over the long term before this on a real basis, wages have been going up. This is the first time in a while where real wages have been going down. No, I'm just saying it's been like a it's been a two plus year period where. Hey, let me have my good news. This is my case for of optimism for the day. I'm just saying okay. that like for if we're talking about like positives for the economy going forward, this has to be a good thing that inflation is now the inflation is rising at a lower rate than wages are rising. No, that's it a is a thing. good thing. It is. I'm just providing context. It's not like just because we have one good thing it doesn't erase all the bad. That's all the damage. That's I also think. So the New York Times had a piece on inflation, and this this piece stuck out to me. You know how I love the the anecdotes from individual people. I don't think you can say that the anecdotes are what's what's happening for everyone in the economy. But I thought this really ranked you of like lifestyle inflation. So Silas Scarborough, 42, has witnessed both features of today's economy: fast wage growth and rapid inflation. This guy works as a home builder analyst in Sacramento and said his skills are in such high demand he could get a new job if he wanted. He got a 33% raise when he joined a new company two years ago, and his pay has climbed more since. So this guy has outperformed inflation, right? Big time. This guy's made way more money. He works in the housing industry. Even so, he's racking up credit card debt because of higher inflation because he and his family spend more than they used to before the pandemic. They've gone to Disneyland twice in the past six months and eat out more regularly. He says he, he gives YOLO as his explanation. You only live once. Uh, he said he felt okay about spending beyond his budget because he's, he bought a house just at the start of the pandemic and now has about $100,000 in equity. 
In fact, he's not even worried about inflation as much these days. It was much more salient to him when gas prices were rising. That was the time when I really felt like inflation was eating to our budget. I feel more comfortable with it now. I don't think about it every day. Remember we talked about the gas prices being up there in big, bold letters. But I think you could probably make the case that for a lot of people, the lifestyle inflation in this period where we've just spent a ton of more money and travel and doing stuff and going out, the lifestyle inflation has has really increased for a certain segment of the population. Fair? Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday as I was in JFK en route to the other the West Coast. Uh, and I was thinking in my head, like, of course, you know, anecdotes are not data, but the airports are so full. So, right. so full. When I landed in California, it was 9, 8, 9 p.m. local time. Uh, and I'm not going to complain about my flight because nobody cares. It was 9 p.m. local time. And there was a whole, just packed people waiting, waiting. This is an obvious take, but you texted me. Is there anything better than drinking in the airport? And <laughs> I know this is not a, like a, a new take or any, by any means, but it, it is, there's just something about being in there where you just say, screw it. I need a drink. It's ultimate freedom. There's, when, there's no, life ceases to exist. Responsibilities don't matter in the airport. Um, I was thinking about, uh, oh, credit cards. Here's, here's what I want to say. Actually, we have, we're, we're recording with Chris Hutchins talking about like credit card points and Chris Hutchins has a podcast called All the Hacks and we're going to be talking about credit card points. So remember I was saying that I want, I got the, the, um, the American Express, the Delta Reserve card to have access to the Centurion Lounge and the nice lounges in JFK. You told me that you were going to the airport early to go to the lounge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, want, I wanted to see what was up. Okay. So I get so wait, to the center. So I, I honestly have never been in one of these lounges before. Do you have to actually show them? Like, how do you prove that you can make it in? I'll tell you. Okay. So I'm on my way to the airport and uh, Chris goes, hey, just FYI, our corporate card gets you access to the Centurion Lounge. And I'm like, <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. I just spent $550 for this card. Now there's other perks, of course. But to get access to this lounge. See, that's the problem. And, Everyone has access now. Well, so wasn't it, was there an article that we were speaking about last week about how credit card points are ruining like the lounges? Yeah, there's like lines out the door to these places now. So anyway, so I went to the Centurion Lounge. Very nice in, in JFK Terminal 4. And then I wanted to go to the Delta Sky Club Lounge, which is, which has, uh, you okay over there? Which has which gives access to more people, so you don't need you so just wait, need, I think so you, you, did, you did lounge you were lounge hopping. I was lounge hopping, so I wanted to go to the other lounge just to just to compare and contrast. And I felt like a schmo because the other lounge had like a fifteen minute line, so I'm waiting in line. I'm like, well, this is a dumb decision. And then when I get in there, it was gigantic, huge inside, huge. And so the Centurion Lounge, it's like free drinks and uh, free food and. The other place, the Delta Sky Club Lounge, no free, no free drinks. All right, maybe this, maybe the reason that credit cards are actually able to do this, I was going to get into this later, is because fewer people pay off their credit cards. Last week we talked about how many people actually pay their credit card. I think we we estimated thirty percent. Now I couldn't find good hard data on this. I found a bunch of surveys. One of them said fifty five percent of people carry a credit card balance from month to month. Uh, this one's another one says forty four percent are what they call revolvers and carry them from month to month. Those numbers are way, way, way higher than I would have thought. I think we, were, we, both took it, we both took an L on that. So, By the way, speak, speak, speaking of that, I was, I, was, I was talking to somebody about the Amex card 
um, somebody came to the office and I had just hung up with Amex trying to get approved for this card. And uh, this is the conversation where I said, imagine like Ken Griffin, where they're checking your income. Uh, yeah, uh, last year I made $2 billion. Am I approved? Anyway, I was saying like, it's so nuts that Amex, which I think spent $3 billion last quarter on rewards. I think that's, that was the number. Where are those points coming from? Obviously, it's from people that don't pay, right? And the rate is 28%. At least it was for me. That's what I was quoted. And he made a good point. He's like, there. He's like, I know a lot of people that get paid quarterly that will rack up a bill because they don't really care because they make so much money, but it's just their their income is lumpy, and they're happy to use Amex as sort of like a go between, like like the advance the advance pay, which which was like, huh, okay, that makes sense. It's it's also the two to three percent fees they get at the merchants. Every merchant that that thing is the. A lot of people mention that too. It's not just the rewards. It's like the, every time you swipe a card, the merchant has to pay a two or three percent fee to the credit card company. That's so, so here's a teaser. We're we're gonna get into it with Chris Hutchins. Somebody tweeted, "I am Jake Stream." I forget Jake's last name. He said, "So it used to be the case that you could book hotels and stuff through Chase using your points, and you'd save something like twenty five percent. Now it seems like they mark everything up thirty percent and offer fewer benefits than if you were to book direct. Have you noticed that? Yes, it's. I think there used to be a. Uh, and maybe you get more points if you book them, but you don't get deals anymore, I don't think. Okay. So I got, I got an email from Jeep. The Jeep Rewards MasterCard. What? Uh, why is there a Jeep Rewards MasterCard? Before we get into this, do you now that you drive a Jeep, do you have to do like the, the dorky Jeep wave to everyone? Like if you oh, see Chris, Jeep me. Wrangler? You do I don't that? do it. Not only do I not do it, I haven't noticed anyone do it to me. Or maybe they haven't. I just haven't, there's, haven't paid Maybe attention. there's more on the road, but I, I remember I had, I had a friend in high school who had a Jeep, and he would do it to everyone, yeah, yeah, and we always make yeah. fun of him. Yeah. yeah. So seven percent unlimited cash back on purchases made at your dealership. I mean, how often are you going to the dealership? <laughs> that's a good. That's a, Seriously, who 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 sees it? It's like ooh. That's a good question. All right, we go to the credit cards. Yes. All right, I like this take from James McIntosh at the Wall Street Journal. Asking, like, where's the recession we were promised? And he, he goes into the inverted yield curve, which we've talked about a lot. In 1966, the yield curve inverted without a recession, but the next eight recessions have been preceded by an inversion. This is interesting, though. Uh, in the UK, there's been six inversions since the 1980s, and only three times did it lead to a recession. But I love ah. this take here. When the curve inverted before 1990 and 2008 and 2009, corporate investment went up as the economy went into a final growth phase. This time, CEOs and CFOs with an eye on the curve might have exercised some caution, basically the idea that everyone has been predicting a recession, so they kind of pulled back, helping moderate the boom and so extending the period of growth. Rather than talk ourselves into a recession, maybe we merely talked ourselves out of a boom. I really, really love that take. This is one of those takes I wish I would have thought. So he's saying, because remember, we had this discussion, can we talk ourselves into a recession? We were saying the economy's fine, but pe- the way people are talking and the vibes are off and all this stuff, can we talk ourselves into And he's saying- Finish, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe we didn't talk ourselves into one. We talked ourselves out of there being like this crazy boom. And I, I really uh, like that take. Yeah, that's a good one. Remember last year I was asking, is the stock market gaslighting us? Right. It kind of did. I'm, I'm seriously coming around to the idea that like, there's no recession in 2023. If you're predicting that now and you have been for a while, you're wrong. 2024, maybe, I think we can potentially push us out to like 2025. I still, I think that's a really well, who, high, po- high probability. If let's get through the end of the year. First. I, think, some. I, I think the stock market selling off was, 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 I don't know if rational is the right word or reasonable. I think, I think I'm going to use both a combination of rational and reasonable because the stock market hadn't went on like a silly run, right? It was like 19%, 28%, 31%. It was, 
It was up and to the right. It was stupid. Um, it was re-rating. And then rates. it was a re-rating. And I think, guess what? Deservedly so. The stock market re-rated these companies in anticipation of earnings falling. That never happened. Valuations being too high. Okay. So even though we ha- we didn't get a recession yet, I don't necessarily think like the stock market was wrong to do what it did. I also think part of the thing about everyone thought like if, if rates go to 5% and the stock market has to fall this much, and because that's the way that rates and markets work, I think the Fed has, because they've communicated so much and they've laid out the expectations, I think now that we know where rates are headed, that that's, you took the volatility scenario out of it. Like, I don't think people understood, well, how high do rates really have to go here to bring inflation down? And now that inflation is heading in the right direction and we kind of have an idea where rates are going, you took the volatility out of that. And maybe the stock market just appreciates that more than anything. The fact that they, like, we know True. what's going to happen with rates. That's a good point. I think I think rate volatility collapsing has definitely been a tailwind to stocks, without a doubt. Right. It's like the inflation volatility and rate volatility has come down, and that has been why volatility in the stock market has fallen. All right. Here's thought. some bad news. Uh, U.S. bankruptcy filings by year, showing year to date through May, and we've had 286 companies go bankrupt. This is the highest through May since 2000. 10. Your thoughts? I don't know. Don't you think a lot of these just got pushed out from the past? This is playing catch up. Like people could take the PPP loans and hold off for a while. People are spending and now this is, this is coming back. I think this is one of the areas where you're seeing, um, where you're seeing liquidity effects, right? It's like just people don't, are not, people are less willing to throw good money after bad. But this does look like, this does look like instead of maybe like panicking, maybe this is just a catch up. To, uh, because we we had a rec- look at how, te- how high 2010 was, 828 or something. We we technically had a recession in the pandemic, and you didn't get a spike in bankruptcies. I guess you got a well, little one in 2020, but not not a not huge. I feel like you've heard about zombie companies a lot over the last decade or so, and maybe this is just this is just uh, the manifestation of those companies not going bankrupt when they maybe they should have. All right, but this is but this is maybe some good news to counterpoint that. Uh, Julian Klimochko, 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 not sure. He said, credit investors rejoice. 62% of new junk bond issued are secured. The highest rate in recent history. Good thing is defaults are rising. The trailing 12-month speculative grade rate was 3% up from 1.2% in early 2022. So again, this is good, right? That like junk bonds that are being issued are coming with more protection for investors. Okay, we'll take it. That's the other thing is we just haven't, we've seen the inverted yield curve. We still haven't seen spreads below all yet. No, no. Um, this has been simmering underneath the surface for really the last, I don't know, 15 years. Just the distrust of experts, government, media. And I feel like it's been ramping up and reaching a boiling point. Certainly on Twitter, which is, a, you know, it's an echo chamber, but it is a decent proxy, at least in this respect, for how things are working in the real world. Somebody tweeted, Dr. Benjamin Braddock, I don't know who this person is, said, the gap between the economic stats and the actual economy is wild. I'm now fully convinced that the jobs number, GDP calculations, all of it, it's all completely <laughs> fake. And then Elon tweeted, the numbers don't make sense. Something is off kilter. And you laugh, but this shit scares me. Like, just complete mistrust of data well i think and now I, I, think, I think i think on the one hand yeah it's okay to question things certainly 
I don't think you should take everything at face value, but I feel like it's going to a dark place that makes me uncomfortable. I think this is another outcome of 2008 where people thought that being contrarian was the same thing as being smart. I, I'm, I'm blaming Michael Lewis for like 20% of this. I love Michael Lewis, but I think the big short really screwed people's up, brains up. And I think a lot of people thought, I'm going against the grain like these people did because that makes me smart. And so they go against the Korean. You're blaming the book? You're blaming the book? I'm, I'm tongue in cheek here, uh, firmly in cheek. I, I also think because everyone has a has their own microphone now. By the way, you, you just folded like, you, I'm sorry, you just folded like a cheap suit. I, I asked you to defend your take and you totally walked it back. Yeah, I was, I was, I was joking. But, but I think people who've gained success in one area in life now have this megaphone to go and talk about other things. And I think we've learned that successful people in one area of life, they can be brilliant in that one spot. But when it comes to things that are out of the realm of experience, and a lot of that is like politics and economics, the fact that they've been so successful in one area, they assume it translates and so many times it doesn't. And when they're proven wrong, then they say, I'm not wrong. It's actually the numbers are wrong. How could I be wrong? I'm smart. Look at all this money I have. And I think that's the thing is like the contrarian streak and the fact that these people aren't used to being wrong or they're not used to being told no. And they get on social media and people say, no, you're an idiot. You're wrong. And they say, no, nah, that, that can't be right. I'm actually right. It's just this stuff's wrong. So I, I think the rich and powerful people now just, they, they don't want to ever admit that they were wrong about something. Well, it's not just the rich and powerful though. They're, they're very influential. And then, the, the, you know, they, they galvanize like armies very, very quickly. Yes. There's a lot of cheap. I, I think there's just a lot of people out there who, who want the world to like just form fit to their view of how things are. And, if, and th like are economic stats perfect? No, because they're based on surveys and, and a $26 trillion economy is hard to gauge. Well, not all of it is moment. based on surveys. What about like jobless claims? Right. <clears throat> that's, hard, that's, that's hard data. That's not a survey. And but they don't, even, they don't trust that, like, that. Thinking that everything's fake. It's like, I'm, I'm just saying like the, the stuff is not perfect because it gets revised. And, you know, so that, that kind of stuff does change, but it's the trend that matters. And I think you can get a good sense of how things are going based on the trend. But if, if you are using anecdotes like a, the stuff you hear on social media or the stuff that one or two people say, you think that's the, the economy, then yeah, you're, you're way off base. All right, let's talk about crypto. I, I can't, there's a lot going on here. Um, they're going to approve a two-time levered Bitcoin futures ETF before they get a spot one. Is this, is this real life? I don't get, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't get what the SEC is waiting for. It does seem like last week was the first time, though, where people thought, oh, BlackRock's going to be here, Fidelity's going to be here, all these big name asset managers. Like, last week felt like the first time in a while that people thought, okay, like, this could actually happen, the Bitcoin ETF. It is, the, the leverage thing is, is truly bizarre to me, and I, I can't really explain it, but I- if, if, if they're talking about investor protection, I just don't get it. It seems- it doesn't seem to make sense. Um, Larry Fink had, please correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> I feel like he'd been an outspoken critic of, of crypto in the past. Is Possible. that right? I think so. I'm like 70, 80. Maybe I'll dial up. I'm 80% sure that he had said some really I not nice things. traditional finance CEOs have said something bad about Bitcoin or crypto in the past. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure he has. Anyway, last week he was in an interview and he said, um, the hits on our website was 3,000 for monetary policy and 600,000 for Bitcoin. Quote, many people are fascinated about it. Many people are excited about it. Um, so yeah, I was saying to Josh last week, I think there was like 
depending on what happens, could be looked back on as the watershed moment for crypto. Why, does the, why is the picture of Larry Fink in this tweet looks like it's taken from like 1984? The picture wasn't it, it, necessary. Yeah, it, yeah, that's a good point. Somebody wrote Stackholder. So now the asset managers who thought Bitcoin was cooked are jockeying to secure a position before the ETFs go live. But 70% of the supply is already in the hands of psychos who didn't even flinch when FTX blew up. Look at me in my laser eyes. The bidding begins at 100K. This sort of made me laugh. Okay, that's not bad. Like BlackRock's going to take the Bitcoin from my cold, dead hands. My initial thought on this was if there's an ETF, Coinbase is cooked. How could Coinbase still be a $13 billion company if we get a Bitcoin ETF? Right? Who's gonna Who's gonna transact on Coinbase now? Well, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna custody the ETF for BlackRock. So that so the Wall Street Journal wrote about this, and they said that uh, Coinbase. Let's see. Uh, another in this winner in any scenario might be Coinbase. On the one hand, easily tradable spot ETF could take some market share among individual investors who otherwise might sign up on its platform. On the other hand, Coinbase is also the Bitcoin custodian for BlackRock's proposed trust and for the Grayscale Trust, and earns fees doing so, a steadier revenue source than the transaction volume-based fees. Coinbase's institutional business is also poised to be a hub for market time, market makers that make trades around spot ETFs. So there you go. I, that, my initial thought there was probably a little off base, but uh, that, to me, seems like a commodity kind of thing, doesn't it? Unless no one else wants to do that, why couldn't someone else come in and do that? Here's my thoughts on the matter as far as this pertains to Coinbase. Going forward, there will be two types. Assume, assume, let's assume that a spot... Bitcoin ETF gets approval. There will be two types of people who purchase Bitcoin, Ether, whatever. It's going to be people that are cold storage, right? Like the real, real, real hardcore don't want anything with to do with TradFi. I want my Bitcoin and it's mine. I'm sorry, but want- those people are wrong. Like crypto needs TradFi. The people who have that, that whatever. libertarian, I'm just saying those people are, they've been proven wrong. That doesn't work. Proven wrong we, tr- traditional, we the crypto universe cannot police itself. We need crypto needs traditional finance if it's going to take the next leap forward. That's that's the only thing that I can say definitively from the last three years of watching the circus that has been this space. Okay, fine, fair enough. But be that as it may, there I think there are people that are going to want to own their keys, right? The whole not your keys, not your wallet, not your keys, not your crypto, whatever. There's gonna be those people, and then there's gonna be people, normal people that are thrilled to get it through an ETF. My point is, how much demand is there going to be to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase when you could just get it in an ETF inside That's of your brokerage account? Right. Did, did you not? Did you make a, a prediction about the assets in this when you're talking with Josh? Like, what was your prediction? Oh, I ETF, think I said a, if a spot ETF comes. Yeah. I, so not, not not just one, but Bitcoin spot Bitcoin ETFs will have a hundred billion dollars in under three years. Hundred billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, you know what? I'll stick with it. Okay, that, that's a all right. That, that's that's a, lot. a big. That's a big number. Maybe I should cut that in half. But you know what? I said it. I'm going to stick with it. Um, right. Last week, uh, crypto ha- assets had their largest inflows of the year, which is you know not surprising. Over a year, so yeah, I think I think it's important. I think it's very important. Um, and obviously, the market thinks so with with what's going on with price. I don't think BlackRock and Fidelity would be getting into this if if this wasn't real. That that's my yeah, only takeaway. I don't, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think that BlackRock's like, yeah, let's see what happens. Right. They, they it seems like I would assume they know something. All right. So we got a big housing start number. Month over month, rose twenty one percent, which was the highest level in the last 
or, or I'm sorry, it rose 20% month over month, which is only the fifth time in the last 20 years. Is this, so you spoke about trends earlier, the trends on housing starts is not great. So is this, is this a one-off or is this, is, is this the bottom? Don't we just assume that this is, all, it's again, it's, it's all a new builder thing. Like builders are the only game in town. Isn't that the idea? You know what happens when you assume, right? What? You make an ass out of you and me. I know. I know. That I was, how many times, uh, did you hear that? I feel like that was a good way to identify like the corny dads back in the day. I think that right? will die with the millennials, right? That that's a little that's a step too far. How about this? I I pledged to you. I'm talking to you. I will. I'm pretty sure those sorts will never come out of my mouth to my children. Fair. I, I did see a Jeep Wrangler today. Speaking of your Jeep, that on the tire cover, like you have to put a cool, ironic, funny thing, and it was a gear shift, and it said like uh, millennial security device installed on this, saying like. Millennials can't drive a stick shift. Can you I can't drive, drive a stick, stick shift? shift? No, I can't. Okay. My, my very first, I'm an old millennial, so my very first car was an 89 Honda Accord, just a pile of crap, and it it was manual. And the my you know my dad took me into the parking lot to try to teach me how to drive it, but the first time I ever drove it to high school, when I got my license, I stalled out like six times on the way to school. It's hard, but it's actually kind of fun to drive a stick shift because it feels like you're a race car driver. But I was always impressed. It's with totally, people un- were able totally to drive unnecessary. It. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, mean, I, I could yeah. do I bet I could do it now if I, I had to, but it's totally unnecessary. Uh okay. Uh according to Redfin, their date only goes back to 2012, but last month were, there were fewer homes for sale in May than any other month on record. I mean, are there any are there any homes for sale in your in your neighborhood? Cuz there's like none in mine. Super dry. No, there is the one. I mean, not not much. So, housing supply has fallen 38 or 39% from pre-pandemic levels this May, which is just yeah, just continues there's there's just not much activity this is a good one i can't remember where this is from first american all right remember the idea in the 2010s that millennials were just never going to settle down they're never going to buy houses and never buy cars sure do as of 2022 per census 51% of millennials are homeowners the bulk of millennials are over the age of 33 nearly half are married and 40% have a bachelor's degree making millennials the most educated generation in american history their whole point was the 2008 crisis pushed things back, but also people just got more educated. At age 30, 42% of millennials own home compared with 48% of Gen X at the same age. Over the past decade, however, at age 41, millennial home ownership is 62% while Gen X stood at 64%. This is one of the things that I, I, I think I blogged about back in like 2013, saying eventually millennials are going to grow up. I saw all my friends doing this. They moved to a big city, and then eventually when they settled down, they moved to the suburbs and buy a house. That's yeah. just that's the rite of passage. You knew it was, was going to happen eventually. This is... An interesting one from Denver. I think this is this is probably bad for people who are hoping for really good housing prices. Someone, I think Carl continued tweeted this, this story. And I had to lean on our guy, Sean, our research analyst who lives in Denver. I said, I'm not going to pay for a Denver Post subscription. What do you got for me? And his grandma came through. And she there had we go. A, she grandma had a, Russo. What, what are people from Denver called? Are they Denverites? That doesn't make sense. Denveronians? So... The peak, they were saying the peak last year of a median single-family home in, in Colorado was 600 grand, and it went all the way down to 520 in January. So 13% decline, that's pretty good. But by May, it was back up to 575. So even with rates going up, so now because mortgage rates are higher, the payments, as we've talked about, are way higher. So even though you had that 13% decline, it lasted for like nothing. And there's 23% fewer homes sold. So there's fewer homes for sale, rates are higher, and the prices have basically round-tripped. So, like, if you were waiting to time the housing market, you had, like, two months to do it. 
we didn't speak about this, but last week I saw a few data points about home pricing, home prices um, being down in California fairly substantially. I don't think it was quite 10%, but well, I guess it's not that substantial. In some areas, it might in, be that. I'm in Manhattan Beach right now, which is spectacularly beautiful. And Chris and I were walking this morning past a uh, realtor's office. You know, they, they show you like pictures of houses that were sold. And I'll put this in the show notes. There's one that was sold for $4 million. And I guess you can't see the inside, but it just looks like a regular house. An absolutely <laughs> right, reg- be there, right? An absolutely regular house. Hey, Duncan just slacked us. Duncan just said, this is uh, back in 2017 from Coindesk. Fink said Bitcoin was, quote, an index of money laundering. I don't, I understand why crypto people, like crypto natives are like mad about the hypocrisy. They're just in it for the money, whatever, whatever. But in Fink's defense, and I guess in others like it, what's wrong with changing your mind? And and in his defense, was two, in 2017, was, 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 was crypto not, I mean, I know there was not everybody was money laundering, but it certainly, certainly was uh, a lot of shady shit going on. Good point. That, that's, that's, the, that's the other thing that, that the rich and powerful thing we've talked about being contrarian, like it's, it's okay to change your mind, right? Yeah, if, you if can't you change your mind, pa- especially on a new yeah. asset, on a new, whatever we're calling it, technology asset class, can't change your mind. Credit to us for not using John Maynard Keynes quote here, but yes, it's okay to change your mind. Credit to us. You know I'm talking there about right? Okay. Last week, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about how rents have finally started to fall and that's a good thing for people renting and not buy, and who want to buy a house but are staying put. Uh, this is Lizanne Saunders. Through May, number of multifamily housing units, number of multifamily housing, that's apartments, right? <laughs> Condos. Uh, under construction rose again and is now a tie for the record set in 1973. This is one of the places where the biggest problem for residential housing is they're not building it off of them. But multifamily housing, they've, they've stepped up to the plate and they're building a ton more units. And that's one of the reasons that rents are falling is because they've stepped up to the plate and they're building more units for people now. This is a good thing for renters. Yes. Although, did you see, I saw a data point this morning, Manhattan rent hit an all-time high, like it's over $4,000 on average. I, I just boggles the mind. I don't understand how people pay for it. Yeah, but, um, but the, what they do get out of that is they can put the trash right on the sidewalk. So Stop that makes it. up for it. Don't, don't you dare. I, I'll never understand that. I don't, know, I don't know where else they can put it, but the trash on the sidewalk thing, like, did they have a board meeting about this and be like, ah, screw it, just throw it on the sidewalk. I know that there's no other good solution, but that's always but that that has never made sense to me in New York is is that there's like that'd be my one platform as mayor. I'm not going to allow trash in the sidewalk anymore. I'm going to clean it up somehow. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> there's going to be semis. <laughs> I don't. Know. Uh, Lance Lambert tweeted. Um, they're talking about like uh, open door, which it looks like they're just dumping homes at wild losses. So I don't even get this. They bought a home. This is just a one off, but. This is, uh, where is this? Uh, Arizona. In Gilbert, Arizona. They bought this house in January. Go ahead. Sorry? They bought this oh, house I in wanna, January. I, I wanna, wait, sorry. I'm interrupting you right now, but Go ahead. on last week's YouTube comments, you got a lot of praise from the audience because they said Michael's not interrupting as much anymore. Tons of praise. Really? Yes. Everyone said, great show this week, Michael. You didn't interrupt Ben as much as you usually do. Did you notice that? I, I didn't notice. I'm, I'm just used to it. So they bounce off me. Okay. Um, they bought this house in January for $670,000. And then a month, not even a month later, three weeks later, they listed it for 586. 
and then they sold it for five eighty two in in March. I don't understand. Um, and this is not a one off. There's a whole thread of of this. So, so this was can, a- we, can we can we can we put this to? Will we see will we see iBuyers again? Was was the, did the first iteration not work, or is there a way to do this? I feel like I'm going to say, tw- I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say you can't, it can't be done. I think this is a 2020 idea. Like this, this idea sounded amazing in 2020 in the pandemic. And this was a $21 billion market cap. And it, it's, it's, it's come up a little bit since, since the lows, but it's still, it's still like 2 billion. I don't know. I just feel like this is just never going to work. Also bad That's, timing. I, I wonder if it, had, wrong. Yeah. had this been done in a normal market environment. Possibly. Yes. It was, it was a really bad time for it. But I, I right. just don't know if the real estate industry is disruptable or not. The FDIC accidentally posted an unredacted document showing that the big VC firm Sequoia had this is from Weisenthal had one billion dollars on deposit at SVB when it collapsed. Oof. So the VC, but it's guys weird because because Sequoia was a lot of fingers were pointed at them for like being at the epicenter of causing, causing the run. So the the VC guys who don't trust the government data should be sending a big thank you card for the bailout then, right? Fair? Yes. Okay. All right. Ramit, I didn't listen to this, but I just saw the article on Yahoo Finance. Here's the headline. A couple who retired early with $4.3 million as a fire lifestyle is wearing thin. Quote, we don't want to just keep throwing money on the pile and keep being cheap. We haven't spoken about fire in a while. Um, I think it was like a big 2019 thing. Uh, but listen to this. I want to, I want to talk about this for a sec. She and Carl recalled a time when they were out to breakfast and their daughter bought the most expensive item on the menu for $20, resulting in a $99 bill with tip. Not a big dent in their millions, but something that amounted to a lot of financial anxiety for them nonetheless. Their attitude towards money is a byproduct of what Carl says is a scarcity mentality he developed growing up, as well as the years they spent saving to become financially independent. Uh, So anyway, the big thing here is just like, it just sounds so exhausting. And yes. unlearning that scarcity mentality, like fire, like being financially independent, forget about the fire movement is about freedom, right? Like the liberation of being tied to money. And that can mean a lot of things to different people. But with this, it becomes like the epicenter of your decision-making. It almost, not almost, it feels like it gives you a lot more anxiety than it gives you freedom. It also like, if you get to that point where I'm going to hit this number and I can live off it, you're not automatically going to be able to change that scarcity mindset they talk about. Trying to change that and it, turn it around is almost impossible. So you're just never going to enjoy it then. So what's, so the, what's the point yeah. of having it? Just so you don't have to have a job? So you can say, I don't have a job and now I just blog full time? Well, great. But if you can't enjoy it, what's the point? Obviously, this doesn't go for everyone. I'm sure there are people that retired early that are you know living their best life and are not crippled by financial anxiety. But I see this as a natural byproduct of this sort of mindset for most people. I think I think that would probably happen to most of us. I'm sure that there's a lot more regret with this than if you would have just balanced it a little bit more and enjoyed yourself a little now and still saved a lot. Like the 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 fact that these people have high savings rate, that's a great thing. That should be applauded. But do you need a 70% savings rate so you can retire at age 35 as opposed to, well, why don't we have a 30% savings rate? Enjoy ourselves a little bit and retire at 50 or something, something, right. some sort of middle. There should be some sort of middle ground. That's that's where I've come down on this. Ben, just FYI, we're, we've got a 15-minute warning. Okay. Oh, here's an interesting one from Sam Morell. We I've gotten a ton of questions from people. Like, what happens when the student loan moratorium is done and people have to start making payments again? Is that going to screw the economy over? This is from... Sam Morgan Stanley via Sam Rowe. So this is like the Michael Scott Wayne Gretzky one. Put Sam Rowe under Morgan Stanley. 
I still can't believe you still haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's you just, at least have what, to do like the, the, the office. It's just not my humor. I, I have seen an episode or two. Okay. It's the kind of, yeah, you, you kind of got to get to here, used to the humor, here, I think. Here, here's something. Steve Carell, I hesitate to say I don't think he's funny because that's not fair. He doesn't tickle my funny bone for whatever reason. I thought, I thought his character in Anchorman was incredibly unfunny. The only unfunny part of the movie. Uh, Brick Tamlin? I, I you love, don't like Brick Tamlin? I, I hated it. N- nothing about it. I love Lamp. Not funny. Just not even close to funny. For me. Uh, I know Steve comedy is subjective. Steve is not funny. It's a, a hot take. No, no, no. I didn't say that. I said he doesn't tickle my funny bone. Right? Uh, that's fair. You know, Laughter is, is subjective. Although I did, I did love uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin. That I did like. Okay. We estimate the hit to disposable income from the end of student loan moratorium lowers PCE this year by 8 to 12 basis points and real GDP by 6 to 9 basis points. Basically a non-event. It's like a couple okay. decimal points, right? There basis points. All right. Great tweet from Buco Capital. If you bought Netflix in 2018 because you thought they had one streaming, you would have been right and you would have made no money. Netflix is flat over the last five years. Just incredible. And- I feel like we talk about this all the time, right? <laughs> that what, is. How much? Oh. No, that is, that's incredible, especially since. Oh, the thesis. The thesis played out. They won. How much? How much money has streaming lost entertainment companies? Billions and billions of dollars, like in stock price market cap gains, right? Disney. This is a great more, example of the stock market. Time. This is a great example of the stock market gaslighting companies, not even companies, right? Investors loved the idea of the recurring revenue model growth. Company saw we Netflix want Netflix's getting rewarded. multiple. Give us Netflix's yeah. multiple. Ooh. No, sorry, you're be, not getting be it. Be careful. Be careful what you wish for. Oh god, I, I see this question in here. This okay. is this, right. from a guy who has no pet peeves. Right. This is the question I'm reading in the doc. Can you ask an Uber driver to lower the music? Well, yesterday <laughs> I got picked. I got I got a ride to the airport from Syed, and I had my AirPods in as I normally do, and he's playing his. Uh, his country's music, I don't know what country he was from, but I'd say it was, I enjoyed the music. However, it was, it was loud. Like I, it, I came in, I almost couldn't hear my, my podcast because it was that loud. Um, did you ask? But I, was just, I did not. I did not. I chickened out. Although credit to Syed, he saw me dozing off, my eyes started to close and then he lowered the music. But what do you, what, what do, you do if you get into an Uber and the music's just at an at a inappropriately high level? I'm you from the Midwest. I bite my tongue and don't say anything. I, I think it's more annoying when they're just on speakerphone the whole time. Like, put in your AirPods and talk on, like a normal person, not like a boomer, right? Real quick, this has happened multiple times with me, and I don't like it. I don't know what to do about it. I think the answer is I can't. There's something I can do. So the kids wanted to have s'mores the other night. So put some firewood in the fire pit, lit it, made s'mores, and come inside, and Robin's like, don't get mad. I'm like, what? Our neighbor texted Robin and asked us to put out the fire because their kids were coughing, which <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just don't believe that. Uh, and it's That's not like every one of the time greatest I, summer smells in the world too, like a, a, it's a not, burning fire. It's not every time I light a fire, but they've asked me multiple times to put it out. And I'm not like a confrontational guy like that. I'm not going to be like, do something about it. That's not my personality, but it is wearing a bit thin. That's a big ask. Put your fire out. Seriously? I mean, if you were like burning piles of leaves in your backyard, sure, I can see saying something, but a, a fire pit? And they're, they're, we don't have a relationship with them, but they're nice enough people. But this is starting to irk me. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm going to get pushed too far. That's a lot. That, that's a big ask. All right, what do you got for recommendations? 
Okay. Um, I was watching Indiana Jones with the boys, just the first scene of Raiders. God, what a, what a banger. Um, and I was listening to Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones so much. Indiana Jones, the rewatchables in the last crusade. I don't think I've seen the movie in 25 years. Last crusade. I put it on again too. It was, it's on all, all of them are on Disney. And I, I put it on again. I had to watch okay. it again. How is it? Holds up. I'm sure it does. I right? love it. I, Sean yeah. Connor. Yeah. Harrison Ford is, yeah. I mean, they still have the Indiana Jones show at, uh, which one is it in, in Florida? Disney. Disney world. So we yeah. saw it. We saw it. So, uh, I don't know why they, they were talking about this on the rewatch. I don't know why they didn't make more of these. It feels like it could have, they could have done eight of them. Here's where they were wrong though. The second one is good. I don't know why they don't, the people on the rewatch. Temple of Doom. Think, That's great. I, I love Temple it. of Doom. I love that Loved movie. Loved it. Um, so I, I think, I think Indiana Jones, not in, my God, goodness. I think Harrison Ford, for my money, is the most charismatic on-screen actor I've ever seen. As Indiana Jones? I think so. No, no, no. Just, just Harrison Ford. Himself. Yes. He, he has between, like the most, he just seems like a confident person. I mean, between Han totally Solo and Indiana own. Jones, it doesn't, doesn't get more iconic. Um, I was thinking about Black Mirror because you and I were talking about, I was like, huh, why did I not see those seasons? And then I realized I did see the seasons, not all of them, but as I'm, as I'm watching this, like there were seasons that had like three episodes. I'm not a guy, like I couldn't read a fiction book of short stories. I need a long, so the, the fact that Black Mirror is like a one episode thing and that's it. I, I watched the first season and I'm like, ah, eh, it's pretty interesting. It's creative, but I, that's why I don't, I never went back. I get that. Um, Personal preference. So there's a lot of cameos in the season. Josh Hartnett, for example, who I haven't seen in decades. Rob what Delaney. That guy? Salma Hayek. Um, so the first episode of the new season is excellent. And I was thinking about, uh, actually, I was listening to uh, the Prestige TV podcast, and they were talking about my favorite episode was called The Entire History of You. You ever see that one? It's the guy that like has like a chip in his eye, and he's able to rewind his memories. Uh, maybe. It's a while ago. Okay. I highly recommend you watching it if you haven't. It's one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. And they were talking about it. Jesse Armstrong of Succession wrote that episode. Oh, wow. Love that guy. He's got, apparently he's got an old British show that people keep telling me I should watch. What, do you know what it is? I don't know. Okay, last thing. Um, This, I I caught like 20 minutes of a movie that I probably saw twice when I first saw it. Like I I saw it, it was so good. I rewatched it again and I haven't seen it in, since since then, which when did this movie come out? The City of God is. I love that movie. I don't. I'm not. A, I don't know what my top ten um, list is, but if I had to, I would guess if I like took the time, this would be in my top twenty. Oh, 2002. Wow, twenty years ago. So this is one of those movies that I'm gonna use critics' words. It's it's visceral. It's gripping. It sticks to the bones. I feel like this movie packs a, packs a gigantic wallop, but it's not. Super rewatchable just because it's so strong and depressing and definitely one of the, one of my favorite movies of all time. This is also the kind of movie that never gets made again. This would be like a series now or a Netflix show. They don't make this kind of movie. All right. We, we, we went, we, uh, sailed through the show love and death on HBO max. It's, uh, Elizabeth Olsen, who is like the Olsen twins sister. She was the WandaVision one. She was fantastic in this. So this is a true story. And I, I, this is a true story one. And I knew like there's affairs and someone dies. That's all I knew. I, knew, I went totally clean slate. I had never heard of this story before, but it happened in 1980 in Texas where there was an affair. True story. And so, true story. Someone got killed. And I read up on the actual story. And it sounds like the show was pretty, stayed pretty close to the actual like e- events. And I read, I read a bunch on this. And it's the kind of show where you leave and you go, 
I don't know how to feel about this. But it was so well acted. Landry from Friday Night Lights was on it. I know you're, and Buddy Garrity from Friday Night Lights. I know you're another Friday Night Lights person. Uh, and the brother, Laura Linney's brother from Ozark was on it. He was great in it and uh, just really well acted. And just, it's a crazy, it's just a, a, the story is, it's like one of those truth is strange in fiction kind of things. You say it's a, it's a recommend? Yes, I would watch it and just don't read anything about it beforehand. And you just, you know, something is going to happen. You don't know what it is. And it was, it was very good. Seven episodes, oh, that's it. I forgot one. I saw this movie, Robin watched some of it with me. She doesn't really get scared, but she was scared by this. A movie called The Host. It was made during the pandemic and it's a cross between, oh yeah, uh, I think it's 2020. It's Every a cross- horror movie is now a cross between this and this and this. No, listen. <laughs> is the there host, any original give, horror movies anymore? Come on. The host, it was very original. It's it's five, four friends on Zoom. And they... they my yeah. eyes just rolled back in the back of my head. Okay, keep going. So they they have like a... Uh, the word I'm looking for, I'm going to... This is not the right word. A sayer, a seance, a say... What's that thing? The person that can like sp- speak to the spirits? Yeah, seance, I a, guess. Is it a seance? Is that right? Anywho, uh, they do that as a goof, and it is frightening. So it's a cross between Blair Witch with like the self-camera type stuff and paranormal activity, and it was excellent. Excellent, excellent. No bullshit. I'm not joking. If you like horror movies, this is a strong, strong, strong recommendation. Eight thumbs up. Super duper scary. It doesn't sound original, but sure. But Duncan's in my menchies saying that Steve Carell is on The Office is the funniest overall character in the history of TV. Now, listen, you have to. You have he's, to a, he's in the he's in the top ten for sure. You, you have to punctuate that with, in my opinion, obviously, right? These are all opinions, but I feel like with comedy, especially, it's very subjective. And I know Duncan hasn't seen every show in the history of TV, so. But for some reason, too. you have a, a gaping hole and you've never seen Seinfeld or The Office. So you like haven't seen any of the, the those are two of the greatest TV comedies in history. Hang on. I write it. No, I write the Seinfeld wrong. I saw like five, five seasons. Okay. You did watch some Seinfeld. Okay. Yeah. All right. I I'm sorry. First- I'm not saying Steve Carell's not funny. I'm just saying it doesn't make me laugh. Fine. You know what? It's, Fine. It's, maybe it's I'll try. Dry, it's dry humor. But the thing is you have to watch at least the first season and you can, they're like 22 minute episodes. Okay. All right. Give it a try. AnimalSpiritsPod at gmail.com. And I'm sure next week we'll have some stories from Michael's trip back from L.A. to New York. You can give us a comparison of L.A. lounges versus NYC lounges. Oh, LAX. What a horrible airport. My God. My God. Makes JFK look good. Are there any good airports, though? Like, has anyone ever gone to an airport and go, that airport's awesome? All airports are terrible equally. No, when when we were actually, when we were at the Tampa airport, we were saying, lovely airport. Every airport outside of New York is great. I would say, now I'm going to say outside of New York and Los Angeles. Okay. All right. See you next week.